Welcome to Learning with Lisa, Student Success Beyond Expectations podcast with Lisa Navarra, award-winning educator, consultant, behavior specialist, author, and parent. This podcast provides support for school leaders, educators, and parents. We share and discuss evidence-based resources that are embedded in social and emotional learning to meet the needs of students who struggle focusing and learning. Teachers and parents find information and strategies to improve students' academic, behavioral, and social-emotional performance. It's time to turn kids from I can't into I can. Welcome. In today's episode, we will be discussing the neurological disorder ADHD, its prevalence, symptoms, and basic interventions to establish a strong connection between you and your students and develop hope within your own students. Although ADHD plagues 6.1 million children, I believe it is an underrepresented disability and these students are very misunderstood. This mental health condition that is considered to be an invisible disability can be very baffling to us educators because an invisible disability is one that significantly impairs normal activities of daily living, but they look physically the same as any other child. It makes it very easy for these disabilities to be overlooked. That also includes depression, anxiety, and other mental health conditions. It can also be baffling for us educators because it seems as though our students can focus one second when they really want to, and then the other minute they can't even write their name on their paper when they're asked to. It could also seem like they have selective memory, remembering some information that they learned one minute and forgetting it the very next minute or even the next day. I believe these children are underrepresented, partly because we really can't see this disability. And it almost is as if it is an illusion, an illusion where they have so much more choice over their actions than they really do. And as a result, there are behavioral expectations that are too high, academic expectations that need to be adjusted and delays socially, I believe, are judged as inappropriate without understanding the true nature of the disability and how it impacts the behavior, academics, and social skills of these students. I would like you to meet JT from JT Education. He is a 12-year-old sharing his perspective on himself, what he needs from his teachers. And you can find this on YouTube. In part of this video that I'll be sharing with you, he shares very passionately the symptoms that he suffers with, as well as some of his challenges. He tries and he tries and he fails. And that's the part that we're talking about the immature actions. And this is what we need to keep in mind is that so many times these children know that they are acting immature or inappropriate, but they don't realize why or know that it's really happening at the time. And could you imagine 
a sixth grader at 12 years old singing about his challenges and what he needs. And he says that he needs the tools to succeed, meaning from his teachers, and that he just wants to be understood. If we look at our own children or other students, and at 12 years old, would we want them to feel out of control or misunderstood? At 12, this means that there have been years prior to him feeling this way. And no child should feel as though they are a failure because as an adult, they struggle too. We are so important as educators and parents that by educating ourselves on what these children need really help us to intervene and connect and establish that connection with our children and students that they need to be able to succeed and live a great life ahead. Although we might be only in a student's life for a very short amount of time, what we do gives them the skills and the platform to keep on moving forward in a healthy way. We are that important and I believe in us and what we do. And so helping these students begins with learning and using best practices to support and teach them. Think about it. Why do we teach our children to take care of themselves, encourage them to eat healthy, to get good sleep, and to exercise too? But often we don't teach children what the proper interventions and treatments are so they can control their thoughts and not act so impulsively. Well, on our defense, odds are we have not been trained to. Oftentimes, teacher preparation classes in college and their programs do not emphasize self-regulation, executive functioning, and what interventions that these kids need. And that's why we're here on this podcast to give you that practical knowledge and the interventions because we're not getting it in school for ourselves as preparation. And also, that's part of our mission with our professional development and with you being a parent out there and you with your child every day matters and we believe in you too. According to the Journal of Clinical and Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, only 31.7% of children are treated with medication and behavioral treatment together. 30.3% take medication alone and 14.9% participate in behavioral treatment. In my opinion, these kids, whether it be mild, moderate, or severe, need treatment. They need treatment for themselves, to believe in themselves and know how to control themselves so they're not like JT or they're not like our students who are most challenging in class. They believe in themselves and they know how to change their thought process so that way they can feel different and then they can take more positive actions moving forward. According to Dr. Russell Barkley, 50 through 70% of second graders are rejected by a close friend. Second grade, everybody. That means in your class, if you are that second grade teacher, your student has most likely been rejected by a close friend. And why? Not because they are forgetful, which is a very significant symptom of ADHD. Most of their peers are tolerant of this. However, 
it is because they have emotional outbursts. You know, they don't have that filter that we just wish they would have. And depending on their level of self-awareness and their ability to control their impulses, they have difficulty knowing when it is that they should be saying something or not saying something. Think of it this way. Socially, your students with ADHD are typically three years behind socially, right? So that means if you have an eight-year-old student, you're in maybe second, third grade teacher, they act more like a five-year-old at times. Or you have a 16-year-old student, but his or her social abilities are more like a 13-year-old. Remember when I said the behavioral expectations are too high? We need to adjust what we expect them to be able to do according to what their executive functioning age is. We'll get more into exactly what executive functioning is in another podcast, but just recognize at this point that your students who have ADHD, who are acting immature, like JT said, it's oftentimes because they can't or don't know how to control themselves and they're just not developmentally, neurologically the same as their neurotypical peers. And so keeping that in mind, we need to adjust the way that we speak with them, the way that we intervene, and also the way that we discipline them. Think about that student who whines or has difficulty taking turns. Take that deep breath yourself before intervening and adjust before going in. And you will see results if you're able to see them for who they are, not who we think that they should be in a certain grade or at a certain age. And when we can do that, we are truly differentiating our instruction, our instruction behaviorally. And without social emotional learning, I'm telling you, when you do that, it makes such a huge impact on their self-esteem that it all begins to come together for them, including their academics. Once they start believing in themselves and seeing that you're connected with them, then when you tell them to sit and focus, they are more likely to be cooperative because they're trusting in you and your opinion and what you want from them. With all of that in mind, we want to realize that this is a neurological condition that impacts the ability to make decisions. It provides us the opportunity to intervene before any further rejection takes place and there is long-lasting harm done. So now that you realize that oftentimes students are three years behind socially when they have ADHD, we can adjust the way that we speak to them and what we expect them to understand and also follow through with. According to the Journal of Child and Adolescent and Journal of Learning Disabilities, within this 6.1 million children, who are diagnosed with ADHD, 18% of them have anxiety, 45% have a learning disability, 51% of boys, and 46% girls have reading difficulties, and 15% of them are diagnosed with depression. 
as if ADHD was not enough to try and figure out and navigate for a young adolescent child, even adults who suffer, which by the way, statistics say ADHD is on the rise for adults. Now they have to deal with these co-occurring conditions. These co-occurring conditions are called comorbidities. A comorbidity is when there is a presence of one or more additional condition with a primary condition. And obviously, I'm speaking of that primary condition of ADHD. What that means is that many of these students are struggling to focus, remain calm, and believe in themselves, but they also suffer from the symptoms of other disorders too. And remember that low percentage of who is really being treated. If you listen to my very first podcast, Turning I Can't Into I Can, you may remember me saying how valuable and important you are. Or even the beginning of this podcast, I have a feeling I'm going to be saying that often. Trust me, I feel your pain. I've been there, I've felt your pain and frustration, and I'm there now, whether it be in the classroom or working with my private clients. You can have one student turn your entire class upside down, whether it be the noise making, the flying of pencils, the note taking, passing it to other people, making noises, especially under those masks, isn't that fun? The darting eyes because they're copying somebody and the list goes on. It may also seem like nothing will work with these students to get them to sit, to focus, and really do what you know they have the potential to perform and to achieve. But what happens is we get frustrated and we just, you know what, we're really not taught how to intervene with these students in the way that they need us to. So it's really not our fault. However, we do pull out that last ditch effort to help them remain calm so you can have a calm and productive learning environment. And so you launch the old, I'm going to call home threat with the sometimes in the back of your mind, I'm really not going to. And in other times like, absolutely, after school today, I'm getting on this phone call. But this approach is very punitive and it's a dead end. It's a dead end for you. It's a dead end for your student. And it sends a message to your student that you really don't know what else to do. But in actuality, neither do the parents. Because in most cases, you would have already had established an open, solid, productive communication system with that parent. That parent might have already contacted you and say, hey, this is what works with my child. Can we work together? Or the first time that you had reached out for whatever reason, maybe it was behaviorally, maybe it was parent conference, maybe it was just a phone call to say how things are going. You would know whether or not your parent is that type who is going to follow through and who's knowledgeable. So I'm telling you, stay away from launching that I'm going to call home threat. It is not teaching your students how to self-regulate, to manage his or her thoughts, feelings, and actions. We need to set guidelines and expectations with parents in a joint effort. And that means that we need to first understand the depths of what ADHD is 
and how to set appropriate expectations and the groundwork to make sure that your student has the opportunity to be successful in your class. A few strategies to build a foundation that will allow you for your students to feel in control, want to learn, and find a refreshed desire to want and work with you, not against you, is knowing that you understand. But the first and most important strategy is for your, your students to feel like you care to understand. As educators, we do care, and we care a lot. But what I'm talking about is having them understand that, or really feel that we care to understand, or really do understand what is going on with them, what their challenges are, and why they act the way they do. They want to know themselves. They don't know if they haven't been explicitly taught. So students don't really know the why they act the way they do. But they know that they get in trouble more than the other kids. And they begin to realize that the other kids notice that they get in trouble. And they begin to see how differently they learn from others. Can you imagine yourself in a social situation and realizing how different you are? You look like everybody else and hey, maybe you think you even look better than everybody else. But you are so far behind in every area that everyone else is. Could you imagine that feeling of despair and internal embarrassment? And so the real problem is that they don't know how to make changes, changes that last. They may listen to you for that second, but they don't know how to internalize it until they understand why it is that they're acting the way that they do. So how do they learn to stop and hear the thoughts that lead them to yelling out the answers or beginning to clean out or, oh, I love this, when they say, but I'm organizing my desk. Um, you're organizing your desk in the middle of my math lesson. And 30 seconds ago, you were sitting with your pencil in your hand. And now it looks like your entire desk exploded. I need you to understand what is being taught. So you know now that this is a giant mess. Hopefully that student's in the back in the classroom, not interrupting everybody visually. And you can say, clean up that mess quietly and sit down and go launch into your work. But remember, this is something that's been happening for their entire life. And until you now... You might be the very first person to treat them differently because you're going to have a deeper understanding, more compassion, but compassion that's going to set limits in the way that they need it, not the way that we want to set it for everybody else in the classroom and they should conform. It's the way they need it and the way that they will be able to perform and feel great. They're going to come to you and say, I love you. And I had a great day. And I love learning. And you know why they're saying I love you? They're so super excited to be successful and to get where they've always wanted to be. And it's in your class. And guess why? Because you are the person who cared to understand. You are the person who now begins to understand those interventions and what these symptoms really are and why they're beginning to happen. You're the person providing answers 
for them when no one else was able to do it. And yes, by June, I bet they really are going to love you. And those are the kids who are never going to leave you. They're going to come back and they're going to visit you. And they're going to be that story that touches your heart forever when someone says, who's that one kid that you'll never forget? And you're going to have more than one of them because now you're going to be different. You're going to be different than anybody else that's ever been interacting and teaching with your students. This understanding comes from teaching students that their brain tells them to do things that is not in their best interest. Join me for my podcast about self-talk and you'll learn even more. But whenever you want to really teach explicitly to a child that their brain told them to do something that is not in their best interest, they don't have to listen to it. Just because they thought it doesn't mean that it's right. Ask your students tomorrow. Or if you're on your way to work, ask them today. Say, if you thought it's something, do you think that it's right? Let me see a show of hands. And you'll be surprised at how many children think because they thought it, it's right. Explain to them so they know the difference. That they can make a positive choice and get rid of that negative one. But we need for them to first identify what those thoughts are. And so having a conversation with them and asking them questions and saying to them, can I help you make a positive choice here? Would you like that? Do you think working together to help you make a positive choice would be helpful? Plant the seed that you're on their side, but they are engaged in this process. You are showing them at this time a level of respect and understanding and structure that they may never have experienced before. And they will begin to feel a sense of security and trust within you and the relationship that they have with you. They need to feel secure and trust. And when you can establish that through them knowing that you care to understand and that you do understand, then they will cooperate. Because then they're going to start to believe in what you're saying more than what they are thinking. That's huge. They will believe in what you are saying more than what they are thinking. There's the security and the trust these kids have not had and you are giving to them. And what does that mean in the bottom line? That means that you could teach more. They're learning more. You're getting more done and it goes right into your classroom behavior management because there's more cooperation and teamwork. And that means that you can walk away from your day feeling happy and successful yourself and a whole lot less frustrated. And don't we want that? You go try that approach and you let me know how that goes. I'm telling you, it's going to go a very, very long way. Let's move from rejection to hope and talk about the importance of hope and how hope is absolutely essential for success for these students. Remember, 50 to 70% of second graders have been rejected. Remember that if you're a secondary teacher. 
Remember that if you're a first grade teacher, we all need to understand where these kids are headed and where they have been. And so that helps us to be able to adjust ourselves and keep our motivation sound and solid for them so we can base our decision-making choices on what their long-term goals are. Without hope of success or acceptance, students just don't try. As a classroom teacher, behavior specialist, and while working with my private clients, I have seen that second grade is a pivotal year. It is the year of what I call the awakening. It is the time that students realize they are different and they seem to choose a different path, a path that leads them down the trail of either I'm going to make the most of what I have and try my best, or they slowly withdraw. Think about this. Of course, it could vary first grade, third grade, or whatever it might be because things come in waves. But I've seen this as a big concentration with the diversity of grades that I have taught and consulted in that second grade is a tender year. So we want to watch for those signs. Those signs of withdrawal can come in many different faces. When students realize that they can be overbearing to their peers or inappropriate, they might not want to say or do something wrong. They're not going to tell us this, but what happens is they internalize their feelings and they realize that they can't keep up with the conversations of their peers. And so when they internalize their feelings, they are at greater risk for anxiety, depression, eating disorders, substance abuse, and the list is way too long. And intervention is connection. Show a level of understanding by having a presence at the playground, the cafeteria, the hallways, wherever you see that there may be a lack of skill to have the students be able to, let's say, keep up with their peers. Have a presence there. Give a nod, a smile, especially when you're really close with your students and they feel secure and trust you. This is the building of those skills we want to see because when your kids come in from an unstructured time and you expect them to be ready to learn, they should be ready to learn. Isn't that great that they'd be sitting, take a breath, and they are listening to you, not thinking about how they may have failed at just playing or keeping up or they insulted somebody and they were looked at and, and yelled at and said, stop, don't do that. So we need these kids to know that you're there always, but they don't remember that at the time because a lot of times they're thinking about themselves. We need to show them that we are there. And if that means taking up a few minutes of lunch, which who really gets a lunch these days? I get it. Or you're a prep just by being there for a brief amount of time will help in the long run. And less of these interventions eventually will be needed. Another intervention could be to have a discussion with your student and establish a safe place to go to release these feelings that they have of either rejection or inadequacy 
and allow them to release them or to fall apart and just let it out and then learn those coping skills of breathing, focusing, and thinking positively so that way they are able to function and perform to the best of their ability in your class. So this invisible disability has so many needs, needs that are unmet within these children who seem and look just like any other child, but they are so different. And what they need are the coping skills. What they need are the cognitive skills being explicitly taught to them. So this invisible disability, this neurological disability with so many possible comorbidities are less in symptoms and more in success. Let's believe in these kids, but let's start learning and practicing the interventions and strategies that were discussed right now, here and today. These are easy and practical strategies that you can take action on. We want our kids to take action. Well, it's time that we take action too. You can do it and you're going to see a difference in your class. You're going to love practicing these easy interventions and I want you to write them down just like your students. When you write down just a couple of bullet points of interventions and you look at them, you are more likely to what? Engage in the behaviors you want to add into your repertoire of interventions for your students. Same thing as what you would want and same approach as you would give to your students in your class if you wanted them to make changes too. Remember, it's the connection you have with your child. And to build those connections, follow some of these strategies that I shared with you today. It's the showing that you care to understand why they act the way that they do and showing them that you do understand. I believe in you. Make it a great day and help these kids turn I can't into I can. Thank you for listening to the Student Success Beyond Expectations podcast, where school leaders, educators, and parents meet on behalf of children who struggle with learning. To bring workshops to your school or organization, contact Child Behavior Consulting and get started with resources available at childbehaviorconsulting.com, Amazon, and teacherspayteachers.com for ready-to-use resources and children's books. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember to review, subscribe, share, and give us a shout-out on social media.